everybody, and welcome to another week, another episode of Relative Pitch. We are so happy to be here and so thankful to bring on a dear friend and old professor that I knew from high school, Dr. Tina Holmes Davis, coordinator of music education and associate professor of music at Georgia College and State University. Thank you for coming on today and talking with us. Thank you for having me. I'm always, you know, so I think the reason I'm here is because I am a stroke survivor and I have worked really hard to maintain my professionalism and musicianship despite or after disability. And so then that leads me to also know that I am more privileged than most people. And so most people with disability don't have the resources to do what I do. And so I'm trying to create resources for those people. And one of the ways we do that is by by bringing people's attention to the fact that it is possible. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I love that. I, I do. Well, one is, like Michael said, we were, I, I feel like I've known you for, for so long as Forever. well. And I just, and I remember when, when your stroke happened and I was like, what in the world? Like it shocked all of us. Yeah. Probably me more than anyone. Yeah. <laughs> And I just, and, and then just to see like all of the things that you have still accomplished after that and, and where you are and your ministry of saying, yes, I, this happened to me, but I'm going to continue my musicianship. I just love seeing that, that kind of drive. Um, and it's such an inspiration to see, uh, especially seeing you like right now on this podcast. It just, I love seeing it. Well, thank you. And I don't generally go for the inspiration thing because when everything is ripped away from you, you, you struggle to hold on to what you can have. So I don't see it as inspiring. I see it as surviving mm. because yeah, I could have been in a in full-time nursing care in a wheelchair and, you know, drooling for the rest of my life. That was definitely on the table, yeah. but I would rather teach college and do the things that I'm doing, you know, to make it possible. Actually, I'm kind of following in David Nabb's um, wake. He did what I'm doing uh, 10 years before I did it. And so I can't even pretend like I'm the only one or the first one. <laughs> I, did, I remember I would piggyback off of Anthony because we're from middle Georgia and uh, uh, grew up in Augusta and went to Davidson Fine Arts Academy or Magnet School. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> um, but like we knew you because you were so prominent in middle Georgia because George College State University. Remember when it happened and then I remember like there was a rest period and then you started going to work again. You were like, I'm going to do this. This is going to be a thing. I was like, so like that is like perseverance on the next level. <laughs> it like last year when you conducted. Yes, at GMEA. Mm -hmm. I used to have your husband be successful. You know, that was completely nepotism, but I got to do it. So we need it because you, you were given the space and you were like, we can still be here. We can still do this. I'm going to provide the next opportunity for the next person in line. Mm -hmm. So yeah, quick, quick, funny story. I use, you know, when I went to Georgia college, Dr. Todd Shiver was the band director mm -hmm. and one of his favorite, favorite starts involves his head and he'd go, and I used to laugh at him all the time for that. Cause he breath and go, yeah. but now that I can't use my left hand, that's the way I cue too. So wow. you know, actually all cues are head cues when you can't use your left hand. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, I will say, I'm sorry, Lauren, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I mean, this is, this is really great because it's nice that you all are, like are, have this connection. And for me, I'm more infatuated with this conversation around accessibility because 
this is something that has been popping up more and more and more as it should have been before, but especially now it's happening more. I just went to an arts accessibility conference at the zoo um, like a few weeks ago and the conversations that were happening that they were like, yeah, we, cause now there are consultants, right? Who go into venues and they go say, Hey, actually you have no ADA compliance in here. <laughs> like you are right. doing nothing, nothing for anyone who has needs. Right. And so it's, you know, having, you know, the conversations around having the headphones, having the fidgets for people, uh, the idea of casual, more casual experience, relaxed performances are a huge thing. Mm -hmm. And for me, I remember uh, this past summer going to the League of American Orchestra Conference and there was a whole uh, conversation within the education sector about like what it what is like accessibility what does it even mean and also like being on the spectrum what does that even and it kind of like de-biased a lot of what the thoughts around it because yeah. this idea around like you know oh like sensory right we were using these new terms like sensory friendly and, and everything and there was like this idea like oh hey sometimes we can think about being like sensory as sometimes you when you were a little restless we need to get up and walk around, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm feeling overwhelmed if I'm in a too crowded yeah. room and that means I need to go take a step out. And when they explained it that way of like, it's really just like, a, this is the if this is the normal line, right? The normal, or like, this is the line that we as a society have said is normal. Right. Some people exist here, some people exist mm -hmm. here. And usually it's this actually, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Some spaces we exist in where we need more. So sometimes like if I'm in a, in a classroom or a lecture and it's slow, you can find me tapping my leg. Cause I'm like, I need something. <laughs> I need, you need to give me yeah. something, right? Anything. Versus yeah. anything versus like, if there maybe is a, there's too much going on. I need to actually be more like in my body and I need to like calm down a little bit. Yeah. So I love having these conversations and just kind of like debunking all the stigmas and biases surrounding what accessibility actually is because for me that type of compare that what i heard at the conference really started to make me go oh my gosh we've been thinking about this like yeah. as a I, othering thing yeah. right i wanted to know if that's been your because i'm sure especially like post covid you've been hearing and seeing a lot more attention to accessibility how has that do you think that it's going in the right direction um, yes, I actually have two big things that I'd like to backtrack that you brought up, awesome. but we'll start with the othering so that I'll make three. Because yes, as a disability per, a dis disabled person, one of the first questions I get is how much time, resource, energy is it going to take me for you to be here? Mm. And I come with my own stuff. And so that takes that away. I, I do remember I did a drug trial in Oregon that was supposed to make my you know left arm work better. And my sister, I stayed with my sister in Oregon because, you know, why not? And her boyfriend, he said, well, how much is it costing the taxpayers for you to be here? And I said, I have long term disability as a benefit of the job. And so I am paying my own way. <laughs> but since, since you asked, you know, it could cost more, but it doesn't. Mm. So that's where my privilege personally comes in is, you know, when I walk in the room and say I want to play, I bring my adaptive instrument, which. I, I, I like to show people because it's amazing. Yeah. But um, I do want to back up before I get get distracted because my thoughts don't line up this way. They line up this way and I will just go everywhere and you all have to bring me back. <laughs> but um, I do want to remember that it was the Education for All Handicapped Children Act that allowed um, children with disability to go to school wasn't passed until 1975. 
So when we're looking at things emerging now, it's because we're 50 years into this even being a thing. You know, before that, you know, people with disability were considered abominations or failures and they were something to be hidden away, certainly not educated. So, yeah, it feels like we're way behind, but we're really, you know, in 50 years, we've come quite a ways. <laughs> and then the second thing that I teach, um, and I've actually written a, a music for the exceptional child text that I'm sending to a publisher this weekend. Yeah. Um, I teach. Thank you. Yeah, I had to wait. I have contributors because I know several professors who are disabled in the same and different ways that I am and have continued, like you said, to go back to work and to do these things. And so I have one voice, but I felt like four voices was stronger. So mm. we waited on their chapters and their contributions, which are amazing. But I digress. So I teach universal design and learning, which is um, preparing for the full range of humanness before you get to class. So you are, you are preparing that, you know, that procedure that if you get overwhelmed, you can get up and walk before you have a student who's overwhelmed. And, you know, it follows universal design and architecture that was an out, a response, I suppose, to ADA legislation in 1990. Mm -hmm. Guys, I'm not going to tell you how old I was in 1990, but it feels like the ADA should be um, older than that. And I'm not so old, but I do. Yeah, I do remember the Capitol crawl and all that. So after ADA was passed, um, an architect said it would be easier just to go ahead and put an elevator in the building when we build it than to put it on the outside of a building that's already there. And so that started universal design. You know, we're going to do curb cutouts. We're going to do elevators. We're going to do braille signage. We're going to do the whole thing from the beginning so that when our people with disabilities get here, the, the room is already here for them. Right. Mm. And what I like about that is it helps, you know, now I don't pay attention to wheelchair users. They, it, I don't have to give them any of my specific attention because the environment's already set for wheelchair users, mm. which means that if I get something I didn't prepare for, then I have attention for that. Right. But mm. the other great thing is, you know, wheelchair users use the elevator, moms with strollers, parents with strollers, I'm sorry, with wheelchair, with strollers use the elevator. Mm. Lots of people use the elevator. It doesn't just help our, our people with disability. It helps everyone. And we can do that in our classrooms too. Absolutely. Um, I know for when I was teaching at my previous job, uh, when the first thing that I said when I walked into my band room, when I first got the keys was, this room is not accessible. So the way my room was set up, it was tiered. No, so yeah. It's like, I don't, you know, I don't, this is not going to work. And because the building was, I think the building was originally sculpted around the 50s and 60s and there hasn't yeah. much renovation to it but I was just like this here has to change and even when we had graduation in the gym um the stage was not accessible so they had sure. to bring in these very long ramps because the stage wasn't so high so just it physically. has to be a percentage of yeah exactly and um I'm like well this should have been thought about and Mind you, I will have to say the gym had just um, like a $1.1 million renovation, just the gym, and you didn't renovate the stage. Which is actually against the law. If it, if it was built before ADA in 1990, it mm -hmm. doesn't have to conform. 
but if you renovate it after 1990, it has to conform. Yes. Well, so, and that's, you know, one of the things that I bring up that, you know, 1975, um, EHA law, because a lot of things we look at them and go, well, that's not not accessible. But remember that when it was built, there was nobody to to access it. It was school was not for the disabled until 1975. And even then we put them in a hall or a basement or somewhere. So only part of the school was for them. Mm. So, you know, I look when I teach, you know, Orf Kadai, Dow Crow, Suzuki, Dow Crow specifically, you know, they do a lot of movement and things and it seems very able centric. But remember, when these guys were working, there were no disabled students at school. So it was not that they d didn't want disabled people. They just weren't there. Mm. Mm. So for for our listeners, mm -hmm. um, when you can you give a little backstory about, it, you know, what happened and and how that how it kind of um affected you you know and then coming out of it and then you're you was like I'm still going to be a professor like can you just give the backstory of that okay so yes so I woke up um it was December and I was playing clarinet at a church with a choir for the special music for Christmas mm -hmm. and I woke up and my phone was you know the alarm was going off like normal and I reached for it and I couldn't make my hand grab it so I remember, um, you know, Jay was in bed and he was asleep. He didn't have to get up. I was getting up to go play my gig and he was probably still going to be in bed when I got home. Mm -hmm. So I was like, something's wrong. And he went, rrr, rrr, rrr. you know, I was like, no, something's wrong. So finally I got it with the other hand and it didn't occur to me that I could grab it with one hand and not the other. That's just what it was. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I got out of bed and my left leg was similarly not functioning well. And I was, something is going you know, wrong and he was still not awake. But when I got to the bathroom to start getting ready, I looked at my face in the mirror. And that's when I said, call the ambulance. And then he was up barking and yelling. And so sure enough, we get there. Um, so um, sure enough, the ambulance comes and they took me to... Um, I don't remember what the hospitals changed names so much in Macon. Yes. Yep. Um, which is the only one south of Grady that is. Um, I don't know what they call it, but but stroke capable, I suppose. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, when I got there, it took them a week to use the word stroke. I mean, I had obviously had a stroke. I was having left side hemiplegia mm -hmm. and I was having left neglect, which is a fun side effect of a stroke. Left neglect is when you actually cannot see or process things like there's nothing wrong with your eyes, mm -hmm. but you can't process anything on the left side of the body. So my dad flies in from Oregon and he's standing over here and I don't nothing. I don't acknowledge him. And he was thinking that I didn't want to see him. So finally, one of the nurses grabbed him and put him over here. And he said, I just went, hi, daddy. You know? Oh, my gosh. So we did the whole thing. Yeah, I was in the hospital for I was in that hospital for a week and they transferred me up to Shepherd Center, which mm -hmm. is brain and spinal cord rehab. And we went through the whole learning to walk, learning to talk, learning to eat all of the stuff again. So this happened was what year? What year was this? 2000 okay it was December 18 2016 wow wow so yeah so my only focus was I want to go home and when I go home I want to go back to work mm. and I didn't think about the clarinets until Jay came in one day and he's like I'm going to sell your bass clarinet guys my bass clarinet I had just gotten this bass clarinet like a year ago it was full range down to low C 
And it was a beautiful, okay, so it was a knockoff. It was one of the cheap ones, but it was the best <laughs> bass clarinet I had ever had. Yes. Oh my you gosh. Tara Wins and their clarinet choir at the time, yes. right? Yes. That, I remember that, oh, okay, now the timeline is starting to make more sense. In my yeah. Mind. So it was actually, we had stopped playing. We had moved to Middle Georgia, so we weren't playing with them anymore, but we had just played at Midwest in 2015 with them. So, and I played my bass and I played contra alto because contra, I played contra bass in school, like as a young person, but we already had a contra bass player. So I played the contra alto because that's what I could borrow from somebody. So I had, yeah, at Midwest, I had my stand, I had the bass and then the contra alto and I just switched off depending on what piece we were playing. But whenever Jay said, I'm going to sell your bass clarinet to a person who needs it, because at this point, my arm had not moved at all. Like my left arm just sat there. I actually had a tray on my wheelchair to put my arm on so that it wouldn't get caught in the wheel. Whoa. And yeah, so I was like, you're going to no, that's my bass clarinet. And he's like, baby, it's going to sit and rot. You know, let's sell it to somebody who wants to use it. And the young man that he sold it to is a musician and a music major. Well, you know, by now he's probably graduated, but anyway, <laughs> so that's when I realized that I was not going to be a musician anymore. Mm. So luckily, I think in terms of the fact that I don't share my emotions outwardly very often because I don't think they're your business. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, I was in and out anyway, just with the brain damage. And mm. so I, I had time to sit and really ponder what that was. So when I finally came back to it, I was like, no, we have to figure out it. Maybe I can play euphonium because, mm. you know, euphonium, right hand, right, you know, right, hand, right. And as far as my buzzes go, the, the trombone euphonium buzz is the best one I make. I know it's surprising with as thin as my lips are, but that's the best one I make. <laughs> so but then I was like, no, you know, Jay plays trumpet. Emma plays trombone. Jay, Jonah plays percussion. We can't all be brass and percussion. Somebody has to be reasonable. Mm. Yeah, someone has to be smart. <laughs> <laughs> Come up with wins, yes. So, yes. <laughs> so, don't start a fight. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there were, you know, Lloyd McDonald came to see me and he was like, we're going to rig something up so you can play the clarinet with one hand. And I remember going, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> you can't play a clarinet with five fingers. So I was Googling at some point, I think I was actually still in um, Shepherd Center, but at some point right in that time, and I found David Nav. he's at the University of Nebraska in Kearney. And in 2000, he had a stroke and he has very similar, he's got left side hemiplegia, but he's actually the woodwind professor. Mm -hmm. And so for him to come back to work meant he had to play. I'm a music ed professor, I can play or not, they don't care. Mm -hmm. But he had to play. So he knows, knew and knows an instrument maker, Jeff Stelling. And so he and Jeff worked for a couple years on a toggle system saxophone that allows him to play the saxophone with one hand. And if you haven't seen his TED talk, I mean, I would do a TED talk, but I can't say anything that he hasn't already said. So <laughs> I just point people to his TED talk. But um so he, he's got that. So I called him and I said, do you have anything for clarinet? And he said, no, but Peter Worrell is an instrument maker in Manchester, UK. And he makes a one-handed clarinet. There it is. 
So, yes. So I was so excited. And in the true nature of somebody with a brain injury, I just thought I was going to pick it up and I was going to be amazing. <laughs> and I think that's a survival mechanism, because if we realize how hard it was going to be to live, we might not be as as willful to live. Mm -hmm. If we realized how many things we were going to have to learn and how many years of I still get Botox injections in my left calf to keep my foot from clawing up so that it's not useful which they're not terrible. It's just a series. You know, I started off with 15 to 20 shots every like three months. Now I think we're only down to six or seven. A little better. Botox into the muscle to get the muscle to quit clenching. Yeah. So I tell people I'm going to get Botox and they assume I'm like, no, 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 not that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for, for several years, every time you have a headache, you get an MRI, mm. which Aside from that, you remember the um, what's the new horror movie that has the little goblin in the MRI machine? The power goes off and then the thing comes running up behind him. Oh, I saw that. I saw that. Mm -hmm. I don't watch these, but I saw the intro and I said, I'm not going to watch this. Yeah, it was on the commercial. And I was like, why would they do that to those of us who already struggle? <laughs> Getting in the oh. It's oh, terrible. No. But there's not that much room in an MRI, MRI machine. Right. There's, right. there's not enough room for you, much less some goblin to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Um, so I'm reading along on the website. I pulled up the website with a one-handed clarinet. And the fact that it can go the full chromatic range. Yes. Really so cool. let, me, let me show you. Um, okay, tell me if you can't see it because it's. I'm trying to get close enough and still see. Okay, so these three keys are the normal, which hand uh, is this? The, the right hand. And so then I've got, instead of the four pinky keys, I have a toggle. Oh. Which is one of the challenges because, you know, the number one rule of clarinet is we don't slide our pinkies. And now and, you slide your pinkies. And now you slide your pinkies. And also the toggle doesn't, you don't always push, especially C sharp. You don't always push it right on the little button. Sometimes I have to push it in the middle to get it to close right. So sometimes C sharp doesn't speak for me the way I want it to. Okay. But it does, you know, so yeah, this is the, all of these, these closed keys and this toggle, they do what you would expect. So, you know, on the bottom end, B flat, B natural, A, G, F, you know, F sharp, whatever. But the register keys down here. Um. See, and there's no thumb rest. Mm. Because there's a, there's a, um, uh, yes. Okay. There's a, what is it called? It's like a bassoon. It's called a clary hanger. So um, there's a hook on the bottom between the bell and the lower key joint that hooks on here. Mm -hmm. So it balances like a bassoon, but on a neck strap instead of a bassoon on a chair strap. Gotcha. So let me see. There's the hook. Maybe no, this way. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, oh yeah. So one the, thing, oh, uh -huh. sorry. No, you're good. No, one thing I just noticed with one of my colleagues in the orchestra is um, they're uh, older colleagues, so they don't sometimes have the full strength to hold it up. So they have a metal device that hooks to their stand that they put in the bell. So really? For them, and it's our, one of my oboe colleagues. He sounds phenomenal. Like, literally, when he they were playing chairs out, I was like. <laughs> and it probably has to do with carpal tunnel syndrome, too, because... Right. That's the reason woodwinds are starting to use more neck straps on these smaller instruments because you get carpal tunnel syndrome after playing for so long. 
But this one had, and it is no longer has an adapter here that you could put onto a boom stand. So if you go onto Peter's site, he, you can see that he has it so that you can put it onto a boom stand. And then you just like a tuba tamer, you just go up behind it and put your hand on it and play it. Mm. Oh, okay. And then correct me, I'm very not smart with clarinet. I see the price on here. Is that a regular price of a clarinet as well? Or is it a little higher, a lot higher? A little higher. I mean, okay. for a handmade, this instrument was handmade for me after I ordered it. So okay. Peter buys the um, the wood, you know, he just buys like a standard clarinet body, but he machines all the keys because nobody, these are not standard like yeah. keys for anything. Right. So yeah, he has, I'm assuming like a CNN you know, metal working like thing. So he actually makes these and he puts them together. So for a handmade in instrument of a professional quality, it is not expensive. I think this one, I was able to get the instrument and pay the tariffs and have it shipped to the United States for about $10,000. Mm. Yeah, it's actually really great. I for mean, for, yeah, for a woodwind, since knowing Lauren and I finding know, right? how much Boots be costing. I'm like, I could buy a whole fleet of trumpets. I know. Lauren really stressed me out. And she was like, yeah, I need this amount of money for a flute. I'm like, yes. honey, that's a car. That's a whole yes. car. That yes. could be somebody's education. Um, that's right. I'm just wondering, because I was like, I have no idea about what clarinets cost. And I saw the price. I'm like, in my head, for what this is and what it can help somebody do after surviving something like this. I I think that's a re not a reasonable, but it's a good cost to be well, handled. Yeah, for me it was doable because I actually wrote grants. This instrument actually belongs to the university, mm. but it's actually it's wood, so this is you know buffet quality. Yeah, but uh, but it's heavy and it doesn't have an it doesn't have a thumb rest. So I did get pain like shooting pains in my arm for the first year or two because I was squeezing it harder than I needed to because wow. I was afraid I was going to drop it but I do know that Peter is working now I keep asking him if he's going to make a bass clarinet because y'all remember bass clarinet was my thing it's your thing and he did make a bass recorder a one-handed bass recorder but he says he's not going to make a bass clarinet he's working on 3d printing these to make them cheaper and lighter Oh, that would be awesome. And after trying to fly, went up to Ithaca um, <clears throat> College in um, New York last year mm -hmm. to do a, a presentation. I have a presentation called Open Up the Door. And of course, it's based on the old James Brown song. Yes. But um, so after trying to fly with this instrument, mm -hmm. then I'm going to try to see if I can, you know, how much it would cost to get one of the 3D printed ones to travel with. True. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, it's really hard to to get people to understand, you know, that it cannot go under. This is a one of a kind handmade instrument. And as far as I know, there are only two of us in the world who play it. Wow. Wow. And I think, you know, this just is for anyone that, any you know, go through this, of that there is an option out there yes. to do it. You know. Yes, and there's actually, uh-huh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. There's actually, in terms of one-handed woodwinds, there are three different models of one-handed flute and three different models of one-handed um, saxophone. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. there's one model of one-handed clarinet. This is it, but there's no double reeds. So for, for woodwinds, it's a little bit limited, but it is, they, they do exist. Options exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, brass and strings and percussion have more options than woodwinds have. Yeah. But if you go to the one-handed musical instrument site, there's um, a UK organization and it's called the One-Handed Musical Instrument Trust. They have a competition every year for one-handed instruments. They have to be playable by someone who has only one hand. So like I can use this to grasp sometimes. So I cheat and I notice David's saxophone has a, a, a grip at the top. And so he grips it, he holds it and he plays with the hand that works. But these instruments are designed for people who actually don't have a hand. But there's you just cannot believe the technology. They have stands and, and straps for all of the brass instruments. And they have, you know, stands and robo tar type thing for all of the string. It's amazing. And every year they have more. So that's that's my go to. And it's you know, you can go on there and find the people and purchase it. Or, you know, sometimes they have what they call rental schemes because they're British and schemes is fun. Ah. But so they don't we don't do as much in America. Yes. Although although a couple of the saxophones and at least one of the flutes are made by Americans. So but we just don't have as much visibility. They actually have structure toward that. And when I started, I wanted to build a structure and that might be something, you know, I can eventually add to the Center for Music Education at Georgia College. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to resource allocation. You know, how much is this going to cost me to, you know, how much is your life worth to me is what I hear. And so, you know, I have to get I have to get the center big enough and, and thriving enough that we can then add this where we're giving resources to people who may not be able to bring resources. Um, something that you just said, um, because it to me that question kind of it, it's kind of irritating to me of how much or what dollar amount can I put on your life? That's Did you exactly. think about that? Did you ever think about that before um, your stroke? Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people don't think you know about that question or will have that question posed to them until they go through something like that. So what was that like for you? So I work, I have worked with people with disabilities since I was in high school. I provided respite care to, um, it was like babysitting for moms whose children couldn't be left with a babysitter. Mm -hmm. And so I have, you know, throughout my entire um, childhood and my teaching career, I've worked with people, but you don't know, you think, you know, as a caregiver, but you don't know. Right because it really does come down to a lot of times that resource allocation. And in music education, what happens is we can't devote the resources to one person. So that one person doesn't sign up. You know, you hear all the time, well, I don't have anybody, nobody, nobody from the special education hall wants to be in band. And I go, why don't they want to be in band? What is it about you that makes them think they can't be there? Mm. So, yeah. So we can't devote resources because we don't have the people and we can't get the people because we don't have resources. So is this like cycle? Yeah. So then you go um, United Sound. Are y'all familiar with United Sound? Yeah. I was about United Sound because Western Michigan, Maryland. Yes. Uh, a concert and we played with United Sound. And it was, I'm telling y'all, I've never seen joy. Yes. Like those, those kids playing yeah. 
with United Sound. I'm like, oh my God, I wish I had that joy. Let me stop being jaded about the music business and just bring back the joy. And it was just like a cool experience for us who, I think like the more education you get and the longer you're in the field, there's a tendency to become more jaded. When, when you see the problems, yeah. Exactly what you want. Like yes. on some of these gigs in Atlanta, some of these people like, if my chair is not exactly like this and my stand and you don't have my trumpet stand in front of me before I get there, I'm like, y'all, it ain't that deep. Like, <laughs> it's not so, that deep. So for uh, maybe audience members who don't know what United Sound is, can can someone explain what that organization is? Um, or- I can't, if that's okay. <laughs> so um, United Sound is an organization that pairs musical groups, musical ensembles and programs with students with various disabilities in their same building. So their model uses a mentorship relationship between like so you have three clarinet players who work with this this one person who maybe has down syndrome or whatever who wants to play clarinet so the 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 child with down syndrome is now in class and they're practicing with everybody else they have a time set aside to work with their three little mentors that help them to play the clarinet and then when it comes time to perform we all perform together we travel together and, you know, when I was a middle school band director, I used to my eighth grade all year, I preached. If you join the marching band, you'll have 150 friends before school even starts, you know. So we talk about the social aspects of being in music education to our able students. But sometimes we don't realize how much more impactful those social aspects are to people who don't get to be social. Mm-hmm. And if I have time, I have a quick experience, personal experience with that. So when I was a middle school band director, I had a young man, a be- I love this young man, um, and he had autism, and probably still does. And he, um, he was a rule follower, a schedule follower, just great, great little guy. But I took the eighth grade to the football game for eighth grade night with the marching band. Mm-hmm. And y'all know, y'all know me, my teaching style is Pied Piper. <laughs> like, come with me. I'm not going to chase you. You come with me. Mm-hmm. So we got we got to the time when it was supposed to we were supposed to go meet our parents in the parking lot to leave um, because, you know, after being a middle school teacher for a little while, I just made a cutoff. We're either going to be there at 10 or when the game ends, whichever one. Mm-hmm. So 10 o'clock comes. I'm leading people out of the stands and going around and everybody's so a van pulls up. They're like, where is this child? And everybody's like, where, where is he? Where is he? And we can't find him. So I called the principal. And this is important, teachers. Do not surprise your principal with problems. So I called the principal and I was like, I have lost this child. And he was like, well, find him. It's going to be okay. So sure enough, I go all the way back into the stands and the child is still in the marching band. Wow. And guys, I said, why didn't you come with us? He looked at me. He went, the game's not over. Is that not the most autistic response you've ever heard in your entire life? (laughs) It's reasonable. It's like, oh, the game's not over. Yeah, yes, it really is. And then I realized, you know, you know, number one, he's a rule follower. The game's not over. We can't leave. But number two, he's probably never been to a game with friends before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how impactful that was. And then I learned to bring somebody else along with me to help me watch the people that may not just follow the rules. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a learning experience. And it's so funny because we have students who teach us things just as we teach them, they teach yes. us. And it's those lifelong memories of like, I know exactly what to do in this situation. 
And I'm and I'm sure and like I know you remember that. You will always remember that that one. Yes. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, um, with you being you know head of the music education and, and your outreach, um, where can others continue to follow your story and any of the the beautiful things that you will continue to do? Um, I think the first place might be through the Center for Music Education at Georgia College. And um, I do have a knowledge box. I don't have that. Hang on. Um, I'm trying to pull up my my URL because I didn't come prepared. So um, that's not necessarily disability oriented, but basically we do a series of workshops each year on various music education topics. So this year we had Dr. Myra Roden come talk about perspectives of being a female band director and specifically because of her um, foresight or her work in starting the um, Athena camp for women in music leadership. And so um, we have actually tomorrow the opposite side of that. I have perspectives of being a male elementary music teacher with David DeStefano, who's very prominent in the Atlanta ORF area association or i don't think i said that right but orf in atlanta <laughs> so we had um what else have we had this year we had wally shaw talk to us about building the parent organization in our band programs mm -hmm. and robert burton talked to us about building communication plans and tom brown kind of went through things that beginning band directors need to know that might not come across in your education as 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 important as they are mm -hmm. Um, we do have Mandy Gunter coming up talking about planning and preparation for elementary because there is this idea among some pre-service teachers that elementary is easier. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, they haven't memorized their music. They haven't planned how we're going to get from the ORF station to the risers. They haven't done these things. And then their class falls apart and they don't know why. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Um, I, I'm so glad that that is a thing because I think they are so fundamentally um, needed, especially for pre-service teachers and any any level teacher can always uh, do a refresher. Um, sitting and listening, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally forgot about that. Maybe uh -huh. I should start doing that. So it really is for everyone. And that. So, uh -huh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it just also piggybacks on the whole idea that we all preach, but sometimes don't think is lifelong learners. Right? Yes. Remain a learner no matter what. Even if you think you know everything, sometimes you can learn some stuff. Yeah. And some, sometimes things change, you know, technology changes. That's one of the things I'm finding with archiving these presentations, because we've been doing since COVID, we've been doing the workshops through. Um, it was through um, WebEx. Now we're using Microsoft Teams because the university switched. Hmm. But yeah, I get these people that are retired and, you know, they know Zoom and they're not aware that it functions just like Zoom. So I spend like a week teaching them technology that they already know. Hmm. But then we, so we archive them in a knowledge box, which is a website run by our library. And the Archive is wonderful because you can go click it and anytime you can get the information, whether you were there or not. 
but our library is overwhelmed and understaffed like everybody is right now. So sometimes, you know, you want to see something that happened this semester. It won't be up until next semester. Mm -hmm. But that is at KB as in knowledge box dot GCSU as in Georgia College and State University dot EDU backslash CME underscore P-R-O-F-D-E-V backslash. And I'll send you all that. I don't know if you can link it, but we'll, I'll send you that. In the, the the little link for under it. If if Lauren wasn't here, relative pitch would be very technologically not okay. Because if it's if it's trusted to me, you gonna get a poster, and it's not even a fun poster. It's just like words on a blank page, mm -hmm. and that's it. That's all you got. That's all I got for you. That's all I can do. I have a mass communication practicum student because me too. <laughs> so uh, I tell her do this, and she makes it beautiful. There you go. There that's it is. It. That's what you need. That's what you need. I have one yeah. last um, thought um, that I want to um, ask about, because I think this is something that a lot of our audience might, might can gain from this conversation as well. For, I mean, the idea that you yourself, you're a music educator and you are now like, you have this huge emphasis and, um, you, like, and focus on accessibility within music. Um, and you've had experience with this for a while, but obviously having this uh, personal experience and encounter with this is, it's pushed you, you know, to, to even lean more into it. Yes. For especially young educators who are starting out their careers and they're like, I have no idea where to start with any of this. I don't even know if my room's compliant. I don't even know if like, how would I even know if any of my students had disability? Like for all those questions that they would have that, you know, I'm not sure. I wasn't a music ed student, so I'm not sure how much this is talked to or discussed within like undergrad, especially before students go off to do their student teaching. But I mean, what 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 what's the advice that you wish you knew? What's what are the resources that are out there that they should be aware of um, for beginning their journeys? All right. So the first thing is you get paperwork typically in your online um, gradebook now. We used to actually get paperwork and sign a piece of paper and we had a file cabinet. But now you've got, you know, you've got your online gradebook. You click on a student, you see if they owe lunch money, you see if they have an IEP, if they're gifted, you know, all of those things. So you click on the IEP link and it will bring up their modification sheet. And that's the one that will tell you that this student gets extra time or they get preferential seating or whatever they get. And then the um, caseload manager should come around during the first couple of weeks of school and have you sign a document that says that you have access to their modifications and accommodations. So what I teach my students, since I my students probably get more of it than anybody else, because I don't want any person to be turned away from a music classroom. And I do know that teachers don't turn away music students because they don't think that we should get an education. They just don't know what to do. So what I say is, you know, plan those UDL options in for, you know, those invisible things. You know, you can't always see autism. You can't always see ADHD. Some of those are easier to deal with because they're here and we can still play the instrument. We can still sing the song. But with others, you know, just pick one you know, find one student who might want to be there that's got good parental support, good caseload manager, teacher support, and just, just work with that one student. Mm -hmm. And then after you have success with one student, see how you feel. Yeah. But my, um, my husband has a student, and I use this example because as musicians, we overcomplicate things. 
So my husband has a student with intellectual deficit, um, actually rather moderate, you know, more, more moderate than mild, sometimes more moderate than what we typically get in the music classroom. And the child can't play an instrument and cannot read music, but the child really wants to be in the band. So my husband's solution was the triangle. The child sits on the front row with the flute players and plays quarter notes on the triangle. And so musically it's irrelevant. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't help. It doesn't hurt. And they're in the foundational bands. They're not like in the group that's going to Carnegie Hall playing quarter notes on a triangle. Mm -hmm. But they are in the band that if they're going to learn and be able to move from where they are to the next stage, this is the band they're going to do it in. Mm -hmm. So you would think that this child was the featured soloist to everything they do by their excitement level. And every time we go to Kroger, the child works like as a stock person at Kroger my husband gets tackled, not hugged, tackled because the, you know, again, you know, it seems silly to us as, you know, professional level musicians, you know, it's just quarter notes on the triangle, but to the child, they're in the band, they're playing in the band, they're valuable, they have friends and, you know, they get to get dressed up in their concert black and go on the stage and play with everybody else and their parents get to be proud of them. And it's this huge thing. So pick one and don't overcomplicate it. You know, if you know, start with what the child can do. And if that's what they can do, then let them do that. Put them where they can do what they they need to do without, you know, we don't want to draw back the performance of someone else, but we also don't want to exclude. So, you know, figure out where that looks for you. And it might not be quarter notes on a triangle. It might be something else. I think Michael Teddy had a snare drummer. He gave him a drum pad instead of a drum for the marching band Mm -hmm. for a similar need. I, I love this for many different reasons, um, but I think the thing I, I like the most about it is that it makes us understanding a little bit more about what d- impact really means for students within for music. You yes. know, it, are we just saying it's only impactful for students if they go play at Carnegie Hall? Or are we saying it's only impactful for them if they become a music major? Like, but what is actually what is the point of music? What's the point of arts? Is it it's joy? For, for this student, it sounds like it's joy. It's it's the feeling of a feeling like they belong somewhere, and um, I think that's something that often we forget. Especially as in you're in the year and you're just trying to like get you know performance evaluations and concerts. Obviously, like we used to, as a teacher, you have to be everything, right? You have to think about all your different. You have to think about the students who want to go to Carnegie Hall, right? Yes, you can't ignore them. But I think often excluded are the students who may be there for the enjoyment of just being and existing within that space. And so I like the idea that we're refocusing that lens as well, because especially for young teachers, they see all these amazing educators who have these all these accolades and awards and everything. And they're they're thinking, oh, my gosh, they their their students are champions or they have championships and they are doing all this amazing stuff. But also they don't i think at that early age they forget that a lot of the students are coming in there because they just want to play in band (laughs) yes my husband joined to go to disney world he knew his parents weren't going to take him to disney world and now he's now he's taking groups to you know to carnegie and stuff but yeah i say all the time especially during marching season we cannot sacrifice the children on the altar of trophies so we Trophies are a thing, you know, when you go out to play, you want to go out with the expectation that you're going to play well. When you go out to compete, you want to go out with the expectation you're going to 
compete well. But we are not going to sacrifice our students to this. We're not going to jeopardize their mental and physical well-being. And we're not going to exclude people that, you know, don't fit the the example of what exactly a musician should look like. Because how many of our kids are actually majoring in music anyway, even the able ones? I mean, that, that's not the goal. That might be a goal, but that's not never been the goal. No. Amen. Um, the joy uh, of just playing an instrument should be our, our main topic. I mean, even for, for you, your, your clarinet, you, your joy was playing clarinet. Yes. And you were not going to let anything stop you from playing that clarinet. And, and I just, yes. and I love it. I love it. And I'll, I'll, the last thing I'll add about the whole, the purpose and impact of it, you never know which student who's going to walk out of band who is not a music major, who's going to go on and become a lawyer that works with artists and works with venues to go, hey, we're actually going to make, like, get this venue up to standards because it's illegal yeah. for you to, you know what I mean? And who's going to be the yeah. doctors, whoever, the music therapist, who's going to go out and become the, the, the flute, clarinet, bassoon makers who make those one-handed instruments? Like, for a student who sees that occurring around them and goes, oh my gosh, I want to go into research so that I can figure out how to make prosthetic arms for, for students who want to play instruments and make them cheap, you know, cheap and affordable enough for students. You have no idea who is sitting in your classrooms. And if you just only think that all your students want one thing, you are missing out on the possibilities yeah. of what can be put into the world. And they're, right now, they're kids who are going to do things that we can't even imagine now. We can't even imagine that that thing could exist in the universe. Yep. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I'm, just, I'm so thankful for this conversation. What a beautiful way um, to, to kind of, like, end the week for us. And for the listeners, this will be midweek for you. So, hopefully, this is, this is rejuvenating for you. And this is something that you're like, I really want to think more about this. I want to learn more about what organizations in my in my city, in my school, maybe your school even has some organizations that, that do this. Um, and just be curious, just go learn more about it. But I'm, I'm, I mean, again, these two knew you, but I, this is my first encounter with you. And I'm just so thankful uh, to, to have had this conversation and for you to share your, your wisdom and your experience. Thank you. I'm just so excited that people still want me, you know, because you do as a disabled person have a, a no matter how well you function, there is a significant portion of I'm just a burden. Everybody else has to work harder for me to be here. And so it's so nice to be valued for for myself with not despite, but with my disability. Yes. Well, I can tell you here at Relative Pitch, we love you. Um, you are a part of our family, and, and we just want to thank you so much for joining us for such a, a, a well-needed conversation. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thank you. And I know our audience members are thanking you as well. Um, to our audience member, I hope that you have enjoyed um, this conversation and all the links to everything that we talked about today will be down in the description. Please go be curious and find those things. And especially if you're a future music educator, like we've already said, know the things now. So when you do have students, you're not you're not one of those directors who like, I don't know what's going on. So just be curious and please stay tuned for some more great episodes. Thank you and enjoy.